the Helix Center, I'm Edna Sessian, the director. Uh, just a couple of... No? Can you hear me now? Okay. Uh, so uh, just a couple things before we, uh, I introduce the participants of tonight, today's roundtable. Uh, in uh, two weeks from now, I think it's November 22nd, we have a roundtable on translation matters. And uh, it was organized by Anne-Marie Levine and the participants are David Ballos, uh, Bella Brodsky, Suzanne Gilles Levine, Mark Palizzotti, and Michelle Woods. Then uh, the first weekend of December, I believe it's the 5th and the 6th, we have a meeting with uh, the French group uh, ADAPES, and uh, that's a think tank which has a section that uh, is devoted to Freud's work. And uh, there will be two days of meetings, about four or five round tables with participants from Europe and the US and some of the people who will be here participating for that are Philippe Dusblasi, who is the who is a past foreign uh, affairs minister of uh, France, uh, Charles Melman, who is the founder of the Lacanian uh, Association, International Association, Mark Smaller, who is the president of the American Psychoanalytic Association, Ian Buckingham, who is the president of this association. Uh, Paul Fry is a professor of English literature from Yale. Vincent Capenzano is a professor of anthropology and comparative literature from the City University. Uh, Jean-Michel Rabat, who is a professor of English from UPenn. And Emile Mallet, who is the editor of a uh, journal uh, called uh, Passage. Also will be a diplomat, Georges Agache, and uh, Pierre de Senarclens, who is Professor of International Affairs in Geneva. So it's a diverse group, and the uh, title of the whole conference is In Which Way Freud's Work Can Help Us Understand the What Ills Society Today. So today's roundtable is on Speak Memory, uh, aside from being composed of water, proteins, fats, and uh, sugar, we are composed of memories. And uh, hopefully we will learn more about it today. I will not go into the details of everybody's CV because I think you have it already. But I will introduce them. Uh, Christina Alberini sitting there is professor uh, in the Center for Neuro Neural Science at NYU. Sven Bernecker, sitting here, is Professor of Philosophy, University of California, Irvine. Tom Carew is Professor of Neuroscience, NYU Center for Neuroscience. Martin Conway is Professor of Cognitive Psychology, City University, London. And Penelope Lewis is Senior Lecturer of Neuroscience at University of Manchester, about to move to University of Cardiff. Uh, so, uh, the format is there's no preparation. You will speak spontaneously and try to enlighten us. Thank you. <laughs> Any one of you can start. 
<laughs> On the count of three, be spontaneous. Is that the idea? Well, I'm not sure if I'm ready to start, but I can try since no one else is. Um, I, I think my attempt to start would be by saying, can you reiterate the question which you want us to try and answer in this discussion, and then, then we can start well, to discuss why don't, it. Why don't we start by you saying, what's memory? Ooh, that's, that's quite a difficult challenge to start that's with. Why I um, well, all right, I'll give my perspective on what memory is, and then, and then these guys can tell me why I'm wrong. Uh, for me, uh, memory is stored representations. What? Stored representations. And I'm not going any further than that. Other people can elaborate. <laughs> Penny's going out on the limb with that. Uh, since I happen to be in the loop, I'll, I'll pick up where she left off. Uh, it's, a, it's actually a very deep question. There's not a, a one-stop answer to that. On the one hand, everyone in this room is convinced that their memories are real but they also are convinced their, re their memories are true. The former is definitely the case, the latter is only 50-50 the case. There are many cases in this room and around the world in everybody's study of memory that are, you have an intense feeling of a memory that's real, uh, but in fact it's not true, it's not accurate. Not always, but sometimes, and, and I'm sure Christina will pick up on that theme for the idea of coming back to reconsolidate re a memory. Uh, so the, I, I think that to open the conversation, it's, I, I see memories as essentially threads in a tapestry and each memory is a piece of that and after a while we've assembled a tapestry that no longer has individual elements any longer but has color and shape and texture pattern and that becomes this kind of, it captures our collective aggregate experience and in a very real way we are our memories. I mean that's what you got. When you ask who you are, you think of your kids, you think of your experiences, you're relying on your memories to extensively to calibrate and express the person that you would point to when you point at yourself. So in a very real way, we're the sum total of our memories. Then we'll get into what happens between our ears. That'll be later. I'll toss it to my friend over here. Okay. <clears throat> uh, I want to make the point starting from the biology, which is where I come from. Uh, I got interested in memory exactly because of what Tom just said is a complex uh, function, is who we are. Uh, we are who we are because of our memories. Uh, and um, when I got interested in, in this, uh, coming from a background of biology, there was very little known and we, we share the same history here. We, we did the same <coughs> type of uh, progression in trying to understand or address some questions about the biology of memory. Uh, and uh, I think in the last, I would say, 25, 30 years, there has been a tremendous, tremendous progress in understanding of how the brain <coughs> processes information and stores information. So memory is a retention of information. And then we use that stored information when necessary. And we do that by retrieving the memories. <coughs> uh, more and more it becomes clear in the last, as I said, 25 years that uh, the storage of memory is very dynamic 
And uh, uh, although before it was believed that uh, storing information means to keep them in a fixed, fixated way in the brain, now we know that that's not true. Uh, we keep updating our memories. And so this has also a lot to do with what Tom was saying. Our memories are not re uh, reflecting the reality of the experiences that happen, but they are constantly elaborated. So we store information and then we retrieve that information in a new context, in a new moment, uh, in a different time, and we restore them in a different way. And we keep doing that. Uh, and, and therefore, that's why uh, we have memories that are not reflecting the reality, but they are reflecting a, a re-elaboration of history, continuous re-elaboration of our history. Um, so th those phenomenon or, or processes are called uh, technically consolidation or reconsolidation. <coughs> a new memory uh, exists for some time in a labile state, and during that time, which is temporarily limited, uh, it strengthens and it becomes resilient to disruption. So initially, as I said, it's fragile, so we can disrupt it easily. If some interference comes around, it could be another learning event, uh, some pharmacology, uh, some other type of interferences that can be used are disrupting the memories very easily during this initial phase. And uh, in the biology field, this was an important discovery because one of the interfering events that can disrupt memories as soon as they are formed or prevent long-term memory formation uh, are um, compounds that block new synthesis of proteins. Uh, and this is where biology became, biologists became very fascinated about the question of what are these new proteins that are made uh, to strengthen, to, to, to make this memory strong and resilient to disruption. Uh, and in the last 20 years, there has been you know, great progress in understanding those proteins and the regulation of how <coughs> those proteins are made. Uh, Are you talking about memory in general or particular kinds of memory? We're talking about long-term memories. And thank you for the question. That uh, reminds me to say that this is an evolutionarily conserved uh, feature of long-term memory formation. And it, it has been found to, to be required in many different types of memories. So it's a general feature mm -hmm. of long-term memory formation. <coughs> Uh, so once they are, they are stable, these memories, they, um, if they are retrieved, they become fragile again. And again, there is another temporal window during which the memory restabilizes. So by analogy, the process that with retrieval, uh, the memory becomes labile and then restabilizes again is called reconsolidation. Uh, and there has been many studies in the field trying to understand what reconsolidation is about. Because if we think uh, there is, it, it's not really advantageous to have a memory made long-term and stable, and then with retrieval, make it labile again. Why should it be that way? Doesn't make much sense, right? 
Why, did, why was it stabilized in the first place to become labile again with retrieval? Uh, and, uh, and again, in the last several years, several labs have, have tried to address this question, which is not fully understood, but certainly we know that during this time is that, um, gives the opportunity to, memory, uh, to the memories that are retrieved to change, uh, and therefore to change the strength. They can be modulated, they can become stronger, or they can weaken, uh, or uh, new association can be linked mm -hmm. to the retrieved information, like an and updating. this is mm -hmm. why the updating occurs continuously. Otherwise, our memories will be compartmentalized, and we will not be able to make new association with the old experiences. So all, all these mechanisms are clearly very exciting, intriguing, important for understanding how memory works. They have a lot of uh, uh, repercussion in the clinical questions, and uh, to mention one, definitely in psychoanalysis and in psychotherapy, where the subject recalls memories, and then in the new setting with the therapist, re-elaborate the memories. I think I'm going to stop, because otherwise I keep talking. I, so. <laughs> I, thought, uh, I thought it was very succinct. Uh, well, to do with this, I mean, it's a real issue about what memory is, because it's lots of different things. You know, my, my knowledge that Paris is the capital of France is memory. But that's very different from my knowledge of the very nice restaurant I went to last night, which in turn is very different from my ability to ride a bicycle, for example, which is also memory. And I think the type of memory we've been most interested in uh, in recent times in the more behavioral cognitive uh, uh, area of the field is what's called autobiographical memory so memory for <coughs> the knowledge and the events of our lives and it turns out that this uh, this knowledge the you know, representations of episodes we've experienced and conceptual knowledge about our own lives is highly dynamic, as you said, and if you put someone in a scanner and look what's going on in their brain, when they recall an autobiographical memory, you get activation from the front part of the brain right to the posterior part of the brain. It's almost as though the brain sort of breathes a memory, if you want. And it's in this area where, when people suffer brain damage, and uh, also in, in, in older age when there are brain changes, that we start to see uh, impairments emerging. And it's those impairments which have been, I think, quite a big focus of a lot of recent research in this area. So memory is a lot of different things. I think the autobiographical memory, episodic memory kind of area is the one where at the cognitive behavioral end we've been most interested in recent years. Mm -hmm. Even the autobiographical kind of memory. Mm. It might be interesting for the group, before I return to you, but just because to, to leverage off of your statement, mm. How many of you in the room have heard of a patient called H.M.? Yeah? Not so many. So, you know, in, in clinical, uh, it is a clinical um, tradition to always just use the initials of a patient to, for confidentiality. Uh, but H.M. passed in, within the last 10 years. His name was Henry Mullisness. But the reason it's so interesting, relevant to what Svendis said, is the following. Because he was a, a sea change in how we understood memory systems in the human. 
This is a young man who fell off his bicycle as a teenager, had a horrible accident with his head, and then was given to seizures thereafter, forever. I mean, he was going to, to, to the degree that he would be, probably die from these seizures. They were recurrent and just horrible. And at the time, there was a surgeon in Hartford, Connecticut, uh, named Scoville, who uh, did a kind of surgery to uh, remit seizures. And, and what he did was to take out <clears throat> part of the brain bilaterally. But the brain is a bit like a walnut. You open it up, and it's more or less palindromic structurally. So he took out uh, some, a part of the brain called the hippocampus and some other structures in the temporal lobe, um, and the seizure stopped. And so from that point of view, Henry H.M. Uh, was, was not cured, but was better. But a devastating consequence of this surgery was the fact that he never remembered a proactive fact again, exactly the kinds of facts. He remembered how to ride a bike. He could learn how to trace a mirror backwards, I mean, a star in a mirror backwards. So there's things he could learn. But the, the person that studied him forever was Brenda Milner, a gifted woman in Canada, and then her, Susan, her uh, student, Susan Corkin. And every day would come in, hello, Henry. Do you know me? He says, no, I don't. My name is Brenda. Nice to see you. Great. They would work together all day. She'd come the next day in Hartford. Hello, Henry. Do you know me? No, I don't. For 25 years. For 25 years. <laughs> Why that was important in all kinds of ways <clears throat> was that here's a fellow who could learn certain kinds of things just fine and remember them, new tasks like riding a bike or, and the like, but had this devastating amnesia going forward. He was also outraged at the price of uh, refrigerators on TV, because he remembered them back 25 years ago. And he was outraged that they were now hundreds of dollars. It should have cost 35, because that was the last, that were, were, where he was frozen in time. And it taught us dram dramatically that there are different, literally different neural substrates, different real estate in the brain that take care of different kinds of memories. Because one was destroyed and one was completely intact. We knew that a little bit before, but that was a startling case. And so the connection that we've all um, been deeply affected by is the basic science that Christine and I do, but also the connection to the human condition, which is not just an end in itself, but terribly informative in how we think about memory in, in, in modern terms. It's all yours. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the question was what memory is, and um, the, we had the initial definition um, according to which memory are, memories are stored representations. And I think that is a, that is a very apt um, uh, account. But um, in some respects, it doesn't seem to cover enough. And in other respects, I think it needs to be, things need to, do be, to be added. So um, Martin already mentioned um, the, um, the many different kinds of memories. Um, habit memories or procedural memories and declarative memories, semantic and episodic and so on. And so the question, I think, would be whether really all of these various phenomena can be uh, subsumed under this heading of stored representations, whether learning how to ride a bicycle or uh, certain procedures, learning how, to, um, how to, to walk upstairs, whether that is the learning of a representation. Um, in other respects, uh, the definition of memory as stored representations maybe doesn't, isn't detailed enough because, of course, representations can be stored in many different ways. In books, archives store representations or at least can be portrayed as the storage of representations. So what's so special about storing representations in the head? Uh, 
as opposed to outside of the head, um, um, or the body as opposed to outside of the body. And it seems, at least to me, uh, that not it's a particular kind of storage that warrants the name memory. Um, you mentioned already truth, and you said many of the things that we seem to remember aren't, in fact, the case the way they are. We talk readily about false memories. From my perspective, false memories aren't memories. Um, they, are, they give the impression of a memory, but they aren't memories. They don't give us a window into the past. They don't allow us to know about the past. Um, I think a slight problem with that, though, is that if the person who's remembering a false memory experiences it as a memory, they don't question it, it's just a right. memory for them, then I think maintaining it's not a memory becomes problematic. I agree. Well, in that respect, it's like any fact of attitude. Take knowledge. Many of the things that I claim to know, I actually don't know because they aren't the case. They're false. So but I, I think, I, I think I it's a treacherous slope to say it's false. I mean, I understand, I'm interrupting you, but go ahead. But, but I think that there's nothing wrong with a false memory. Say it again. We want a discussion, so it's okay to interrupt. Well, then, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but but uh, do, do you know who Dick Neiser is? So yeah. Dick, Dick Neiser did a, a, a beautiful series of studies. This was a guy. He, uh, he was one of the fathers of this field. He's at Emory University, but before in Europe. And um, he took advantage of the Challenger disaster. Yeah? And 1986. So if I, for folks in the room who can see me, if I do this... Does that mean anything to anybody? What's that? What, did, what just happened in your head when I do that? Exactly. So you saw two white trails on an azure blue sky. So folks who can visually bring that up. So that's a memory. And I just evoked it without a word, right? Well, he took advantage at Emory University of going around the day of that disaster. There's many other kinds of studies, but his is canonical. And said, where were you, Penny? When were you in that? Where were you, Ed, when that happened? And the kind of what he, at the time, what he would hear from students would be what I'm going to now recount as if my wife, Mary, my, Mary Jo and I have been married 51 years. She's over in the corner. So we've been together most of our lives. That's important because if I would answer him, I'm going to make this up, I would say, well, as I'm way back from chemistry class and I met my wife, who's a painter, we met my wife on way back from art class and we're walking across campus and we stopped as we usually do to get our pita for lunch. We were going to sit outside and we looked in the commons and we saw these activity and people are crying and they're looking at the TV. I'm intentionally being very granular because they're very detailed memories I just gave you. Now, what he would do is talk to you a year later, two years later, three years later, and I would give that account. Mary Jo and I met. We were, the only problem was I didn't meet Mary Jo until the next year. Right? Now, was I lying? No. I was trying to make sense in the present and integrate. As much as Christina said about updating, his memories are trying to, trying to make sense of the world. And so that was an absolutely real memory that was felt and perceived and had a neural basis. Everything is there. It just wasn't true. And so I don't think, I, w I would disagree if, that, if it doesn't allow it to be in the category of memory. What it does is mean that it's, it's a, a try to, uh, an updating of an experience that we're trying to make sense of. And, and, and I think memories allow us to make sense of that, just as we create a statistical model of the world. If we hear this outside, we would not think it's a giraffe. We would probably think it's a horse, right? But if we were elsewhere, we would have a very different 
perception of the same sound. So often we're just trying to make sense of our world with the best information we have. And since I've been with Murillo 51 years, it's a pretty darn good narrative. It just turns out to be wrong. Where that really matters is when you get into the realm that you are in, in therapy and trying to deal with memories that are painful or, or, or hurtful for folks and want to try to deal with them and access them to get at them. What do you think, Penny? You believe any of this stuff? I think that um, I don't think there's a problem in this discussion between, I mean, I think your point that some memories are false and your point that those are still memories can coexist. I think, um, I think you're absolutely yeah. right. They can coexist, but it, it's difficult to make room for the dynamic nature of memory, mm -hmm. the sense-making, the meaning-creating yeah. feature of memory to make room of, the, in, of that aspect of memory and still allow memories to actually give us knowledge about the past, mm -hmm. where knowledge is, mm -hmm. requires truth. So it's compatible, I believe, but mm -hmm. um, it's not easy to say how. Mm -hmm. maybe, uh, maybe one way kind of out of this is that a lot of people have been thinking recently, because of the work that's been done on people imagining the future, or imagining alternative pasts, if you put them in the scanner and see what's going on in their brains, it's really no different from when they're remembering the past. Right. So people have been talking about, rather than a memory system, a, remember, a remembering imagining system, if you want. Now, if you think about it, you can't really imagine things unless you can remember. Amnesic patients can't imagine the future. If you say to an amnesic patient, what are you doing next Friday, they just become very distressed. Mm. So. It seems as though you need a memory to be able to imagine, and that the two are kind of interlinked together. And it's within that context that bits of the past emerge, some of which are somehow a reflection of the past, and some of which are perhaps something that's more imagined. I think the point is, that we get to that we all get worried about, is that it means, an implication is that, well, maybe all our memories are false, and in a sense they are, because if you think about how an event gets encoded, first of all, it's massively time compressed. So when I remember this event in a month's time, I'll be remembering it in two minutes, even though it took two hours. Right? Mm -hmm. So in that sense, all memories are, in a sense, not uh, accurate representations. And just as an aside, and I'll stop talking because it's your turn, really, but uh, I think we've got a problem in that at the heart of our beliefs about memory, we think that memory is like a video or it's like photographs. And it absolutely is not. Right. right. It's a psychological representation. So if you can do with that with belief, then you can begin to accept that memories are some sort of representation of the past. To come back to your point, Penny. But the question is, what sort of representation? I think that's the maybe that's what you're going to mm. arrive at. But I think that's the interesting bit at the heart of the, the, yeah. this bit of the discussion. Mm -hmm. So yeah, to what extent may memory alter, change, or edit? the stored content without being confabulation and still be memory. Mm -hmm. Exactly. That's an interesting question. And I think, just to come back and reiterate again, the question really goes to the heart of what is it that's being represented? Because we do not know about how memories get encoded. We don't know how our memory, all of us in this room, how our memory of this event gets encoded into long-term memory. If we went around and asked everybody next week, everyone would have a different version of what went on. And you might want to say, well, that's because we all have different interests and we attended to different things. But we don't know how it got in there, and we don't know what form it's in either. Although we do know that memories often do come to mind uh, 
with some visual imagery, but otherwise we don't know much about them. So I think it's worth jumping in here and, and, mm. and talking about how memories evolve as well, because you're making the point that memories are labile and plastic and they mm -hmm. can change, and it's because they're labile and plastic that we sometimes wind up with false memories. Otherwise, if they were just fixed, we wouldn't have these. <laughs> So, so that, to me, raises the question of why are they plastic? Why do they change? And for me, that's one of the things that's the most interesting about memories. They, there's a reason why they're plastic and why they change. In fact, there are probably lots of reasons. The one I want to touch on is um, how do you... So you mentioned it when you talked about memory as a fabric. Mm -hmm. Lots of individual threads. Mm -hmm. And you know, initially, you might see individual threads, and then eventually, you see the pattern of the fabric itself. For me, this is an important aspect of the evolution of memories. Martin, I think, mentioned the fact Paris is the capital of France mm. as a form of memory. That's what we call semantic memory. It's very different than remembering what I had for breakfast this morning, mm -hmm. which is what we would call episodic memory. And a major question in my mind is, where did these semantic memories, which is our general abstracted out knowledge of the world, divorced from the individual events which we experience to build it up, where do those come from? Mm -hmm. And this is incredibly important because that semantic knowledge is the basis of who we are. You know, everything that we know, every prediction we make about things that are gonna happen, the consequences of our actions, how people will respond to us, it comes from the semantic memory. Mm -hmm. And so, one, I'll just oh, no, go on, go on. finish this thought and then you can jump in. Um, so, so, one idea about where that semantic memory comes from is that those episodic memories build up and then those representations of episodes actually change. They're plastic, they evolve across time and across sleep, which is my particular interest. And they become abstracted out and generalized and they build up schemas of how things in the world relate to each other that's the basis of our semantic memory. And I could say more about it, but I think Martin wants to come in there. Uh, no, I completely agree with what you said, actually. <laughs> uh, I mean, just to add to it, one of the a very interesting amnesic patient many years ago reported by, uh, God, his name is just Cermak, Led Cermak. A physicist, right, a highly intelligent man, a theoretical physicist who, be, who had a, a stroke and basically meant he could no longer encode new information into memory. And uh, they could give him very complicated <coughs> articles in the physics of light. He was a laser expert. And he could read those articles and pretty much understand them. He couldn't retain anything from them at mm -hmm. all. Right? So without these mysterious episodic memory things, <coughs> whatever they are, we can't learn either. So we it seems we can't, can't learn, learn either. Right. And it might be what's happening with children, for example, is maybe the hippocampus is functioning when you're born or around about then, and they can form episodic memories. I mean, there is a whole developmental theory that says how a child learns the meaning of the word ball is that mum rolls the ball along the floor and says ball, and then they're outside and she rolls it along the grass and says ball, and the child builds up lots of different episodic memories with this verbal label in it, ball, and eventually the key bit of all of these episodes, this labelled ball, gets separated out and becomes mm -hmm. you know, the, the semantic representation. Mm -hmm. It's one story, not everybody buys that one, but uh, it seems that people who are born with a Sorry, I'll stop talking. People who are born with a, a disorder called developmental amnesia, who usually because of an anoxic accident at birth, don't have a fully functioning hippocampus. 
nonetheless, some of them seem to be able to acquire uh, semantic knowledge mm -hmm. without having uh, episodic memories, and that's another mystery. We don't know how they do it. It's, it's a really, this is so much fun, because in our world, in, in neuroscience, Christy and I have been friends for 40 years and worked together and everything, so I'm not surprised we have a vocabulary that overlaps a lot. But listening to you is so much fun, because it makes me have to re actually to literally, I need a libretto to, to now know what we're talking about, and it makes so much sense the way you just formed it, even though it's a little different than we think about it. One, one thing that is fun that I've been thinking about for the last couple of years, in our world, in neuroscience, maybe in the psychoanalytic world as well, we often ask, how does it work? Whatever the it is, how does it work? When I move, how does my arm get told by my brain to move? Or <clears throat> when I think of my daughter Amy, how do I remember her face? And we often center on the how. How does it work? What's the mechanisms, what's the schema, what's the underlying texture, and so on. But the it needs some attention as well. The it really matters, because sometimes the very same it that you're looking at has a different underlying mechanism. It's not like there's different you know, episodic versus semantic memories, but the very same memory looks exactly the same. I want to tell you what one guy's study that's so interesting, it may open up another domain of the discussion. <clears throat> so Larry Feig, years ago in, in, in Boston, looked at an animal model of memory, looked at a mouse. We can make designer mice. We can put genes in and out of them at will now. And he has a mouse that had a genetic problem. I won't tell you what it is. It was a G protein. And the mouse had a, had a problem with hippocampal memory a task, learning new objects, and it had a problem with, with a brain mechanism called LTP, synaptic facilitation, that's thought to be a mechanism of that memory. So the, the, the mouse had a problem. And they gave these mice a lot of external stimulation. It's called an enriched environment. They got on running wheels, and they played with each other, and they pushed each other around. And they got better. The memory got better, and the brain mechanism got better. If you looked in the brain, you said, oh my gosh, it's back. So you might say, <clears throat> wonderful, we just made it better. It's a different it. Turns out that the brain mechanism that got better had a was not the same mechanism. <laughs> it was something else. It still got you to the same phenotype, the same endpoint, very different underlying mechanism. Why is that important? Well, obviously, theoretically, it's interesting. But if you're going to now talk about therapies and targeted therapies for given kind of cognitive disorders, we better know the it. We better know how it's, what its texture is. That's what Christina does for a living, is to figure out how it works. So the fun thing is that even within a category that we'd accept as a common category, what looks like it maybe have four, five, six different ways that it got to that final end state. That opens up for philosophy, a real question of, well, when do, is it still the same thing or not? That's what you do for a living. I'm out of it. But does that really matter? I mean, sure does if you're going to give me a pill and make me better. Well, I was actually thinking the exact opposite. I was thinking if you can boost someone's memory with an intervention, does it really matter how it works as long as it doesn't have negative side effects? Well, there you go. <clears throat> First of all, the notion of side effect I've always loved. There's no such thing as a side effect. There's effects, mm -hmm. the ones we like and the ones we don't like. So the, the real problem is not in this uh, task-oriented stuff where you can exercise making it better, but if we're going to, for example, have some targeted drug for Alzheimer's, right? Well, we better know what, what we're trying to fix because every drug you ever put in the brain has pluripotent effects. There's no such thing as a singular effect. Well, let me play devil's advocate Go for, it. for a minute. Um, Going to be a fight. Since I'm here because of my interest in the impact of sleep on memory, right. and my field has a way to improve memories non-invasively without drugs, right. um, <laughs> without understanding what memories actually are. Absolutely. I'll briefly describe it. 
Um, so we know that memories are neurally spontaneously replayed during sleep. That means that the, the brain activity associated with something that you learned in the day spontaneously reoccurs while you're asleep. And this is associated with strengthening. Mm -hmm. So the memories which replay are remembered better the next day. Mm -hmm. That's great but it doesn't allow us control. Recently, um, research has given us a tool to control it. So instead of waiting for this to happen spontaneously, we can pair a memory with a sound or a smell and mm. then represent that sound or smell when people are sleeping. It will trigger that reactivation and that memory will be selectively strengthened. Mm -hmm. And we, this, is, this has been replicated many times mm -hmm. in many labs around the world. It works, mm -hmm. we know it works. Um, we would like to apply this in Alzheimer's disease. It hasn't been done yet. Mm -hmm. um, it would be interesting to see how well that works. But we still don't know what a memory is. Mm -hmm. And we certainly you know, know not much further with the, the, the kind of chemical cellular basis of it. But we know we can strengthen it. So mm -hmm. that's fine, right? Why can't we use that intervention? You can. They're not mutually exclusive in any way. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> you can absolutely do it that way. In fact, what you're doing is strengthening it without knowing the mechanism. Exactly. But that's just fine as long as you, we appreciate that. There are, other, there are ways that that could be inventive and useful, and there are other things that are not as useful, for, and people are in suffering. And you've got to worry about them, too. So we can't, it's not one-stop shopping there. The last thing about the FIG study that's going to blow your mind is, <clears throat> remember I told you that you made the, the rats run around and they got better? Their kids got better. <laughs> their kids got better. The rat pups got better. How, Lamarck lives, right? The kids got better for about two hours. How the heck did, well, what happened was that it's transmitted through the mother. And the mother's womb and the mother's hormonal environment transfers the gain of function. It, remember, the mice still have the darn mutation. The pups are still rat pups with the mutation, or mice with the mutation. But they had memory, the memory was improved and their brain was improved because mom's uterine environment and the hormonal environment allowed that to be transferred for two months. So, and it's not Lamarck, it is the fact that there was an experience that's epigenetic that gets transferred. <clears throat> and we're, there's no, I don't think there's any tension between doing things we don't know why. I go to the gym to try to feel better. I don't have any idea what the hell is going on, except that I hurt like hell at the end. But it, I have the illusion that it's good for me. And I don't care what the muscles are doing. I just want to feel better. So I don't think we need mechanism all the way along. But, but I think the, the reverse is hard to defend. And you're not saying it. It's not fair to you. That to not understand it wouldn't be a goal. I mean, to understand it will always at least help us get further along. Sure. Yeah, of course. What do you think, Christina? Well, no, I, I think in, in biology, this is what we are trying to do, right? And, and that's why I mentioned consolidation and reconsolidation. So consolidation lasts uh, for episodic memories in a rat that we are studying. Uh, in the hippocampus, it requires more than 24 hours to complete. Why 24 hours? So you are saying, oh, during sleep, they are replayed. And clearly, uh, we want to know what goes on in these 24 hours, what goes on in the phases of sleep, for example, and other labs are studying that. So it is important to understand the underlying mechanisms because if we have a handle of those, then we can actually target exactly what we want to see happening. The reactivation of memory, the recalls <coughs> to give the smell during the sleep, uh, reactivates, again, the cascade of changes <coughs> that lead to memory strengthening, 
this process of consolidation. So there is a lot actually known, not enough is the beginning, uh, but th there is quite a bit of done in terms of mechanism of how to strengthen the memory with a retrieval. So you present a cue, mm -hmm. the, the, the trace is reactivated. Doesn't have to be in the awake state. It could be while they're sleeping. But the reactivation, we know, uh, in certain experiments that lead to memory strengthening. But can I just say, it's probably not the memory you're strengthening, it's access of the memory you're strengthening. Well, <coughs> what we know is that consolidation lasts for quite a while, and through consolidation, memory strengthens and stabilizes. So, um, I don't if, have a problem with consolidations, then, that's, that's fine. If, if then we're saying, well, uh, you know, retrieval is going to be better accessed with time, um, perhaps. But, I mean, it, it's something that has to be really carefully dissected. But in terms of mechanisms, they, they seem that they built over time, and this building leads to memory strengthening. Well, I suppose the point I'm trying to get at really is what is being consolidated? <laughs> What is, what being, is being consolidated? Now, people often talk about it as though it's the memory, whatever the memory is. It's being kind of you know, linked into other things. It's, uh, uh, or is it instead not the memory which is being consolidated, but your ability to access it or sure. access bits of it? And that might be a really a very different thing. And I'm saying that, Christine, you won't like this because I don't believe in reconsolidation. <laughs> well, we can talk. We can we can one. talk about about it uh, extensively. I mean, uh, um, this is what we are studying. So I know <coughs> I know what we do. I know the the work of other labs in reconsolidation. So we can talk about that. So the reason why I'm saying no, I don't think that that's the case because you know shorter memories are very detailed, right? They form in the moment we are in the experience. But long-term memory built with time. So if there was you know, a problem in like, getting better in accessing them, then why do we have shorter memory with all the details that actually disappear? So there are different memory processes that occur depending well, on the experience and the duration. Well, the number of points there, really, but I think most people would say that if you've got a memory that's has a duration of more than two minutes, and it's long-term memory. The duration of short-term memory really? is thought to be about two minutes. Whoa. No, we're, if, we're not saying no, that. No, we're not saying <laughs> that. I'm just, I'm no, no, you ain't going to get gene activation in 10 minutes. Uh, I suppose the cognitive end of memory research. But, okay, if we said to everyone in this room now, tell me everything that's happened to you today, they could give us a, an exquisitely, minutely detailed account. Mm -hmm. If we ask everyone again in a year's time, maybe nothing, maybe a few details. That doesn't mean to say that information has been lost from the system. Right? What it might mean to say is your ability to access it has been lost. Well, th this is actually, if, and this is where we can turn to you, who do philosophy for a living. I think that we, th first of all, let's not confuse metaphor and mechanism. Right? So we use a lot of language to capture stuff, which is fine. Storage, retrieval. The brain doesn't know what that means. The brain just adapts and engages the world and succeeds or not and so on. So animals from mice right on up to our kids are, are pretty good at it. <clears throat> we capture those events with shorthands like storage and retrieval. Those are semantic constructs that allow us to talk to each other about it. The brain doesn't know what that means. And I think my own view on it is that it, there's an impossible disentanglement. You can never show a storage deficit. 
you can only show a retrieval deficit. Because let's say I try to get a memory out of Ed, and he can't give it to me, and then I give him a glass of water and it comes back, that means you couldn't access it. But it, I didn't put a new one in there, so if we had trouble accessing it, we'd call that a retrieval problem. So, uh, so the only way you can know there's a storage deficit is by virtue of retrieval in some way. So they're conflated inexorably by our language and the way we try to capture what we, how we talk about it. And, and I, for me, it doesn't really matter. It's, I like to, because I believe you brought up evolution. I think not just us, but critters on the planet forever have been really good at updating memories to be adaptive and changing their risk analysis based on current things like hunger and, and the like. So it's a very complicated business. I, I don't have a problem with calling it. I think it's perfectly reasonable to say you could probably just have, can't get at that memory. But I don't think that we'll ever be able to untangle that. At least, certainly mechanistically, we can't, because the only way you know a memory's there is to retrieve it. That's, that's, the, that's the route. But it does have really, really interesting implications if you think that uh, it's all in there, but you just can't access it. You bet. It. Oh, it's phenomenally because interesting. Because it's probably still influencing a great deal of your behavior in the world, your conscious behavior, even though you don't realize it. Yeah. So the people you're attracted to, the people you don't like, the things mm -hmm. you want to go and see, the things you don't, maybe be driven by information you cannot get into consciousness, but is nonetheless in there and is still influencing processing. Well, I have a question about that, which I've had for some time. Are those, would you consider those memories? In other words, would you consider the person you are attracted to the result of memory? So, what, which touches on the issue, like, you are a two-and-a-half-year-old, and, a half year old and uh, your father dies or your mother dies. And so now you have a different person taking care of you, or your mother is depressed because your father has died. Mm -hmm. So your mother is different now. And this is inevitably going to have some impact on you. Are those effects, which can manifest themselves 30 years later in the type of person you chose to marry, <laughs> do they, are those memories? those experiences that are formative in a certain mm. way. I think that someone sitting next to you wants to speak to that one. <laughs> I'll no. speak to it as well. But. No, no, go ahead, go ahead. I, I wanted to open a new topic. Oh, right. Well, very brief then. I mean, you, you say, are these memories? They're the stuff from which memories are generated, is what I'd say. Or could, in principle, be, if you could just access them. I mean, most people can't access memories that occurred of events that below the age of three anyway, from the pre-verbal period, not at all. But what kind of a memory would you say it is if you were interacting with a mother who wasn't mm. depressed last week and who is very depressed this week? What kind of memory does a two-year-old mm -hmm. or two-and-a-half-year-old have about that? Well, exactly. And it's, I think it goes back to a point that came up earlier on, and that is we don't know how these things get encoded. We just don't know what the selection processes are. I mean, Freud had a great, a great term for this, didn't he? He called it uh, after, afterwardsness. Right? I can't say it in German. I can barely say it in English. But the whole idea was that, that the memory you end up with after some event you've experienced has this uh, reprocessing that's gone on, some selection, some details have been made available and some have not been made available. You know, so there have been inhibitory processes as well as you know, excitatory activation processes. What sort of memory a two-year-old has, I just, I really don't know, but I assume it would be primarily non-verbal 
and effective, uh, and it might have some, you know, I don't know, modality-specific information in it, imagery or something like that. I think and we should hear your new topic. If it connects to what you were saying, that the episodic memories, in a way, after a while, turn into semantic. Yeah, I don't know how tightly that links to the retrieval issue, which is really mm. what you're talking about. I mean, what I was going to ask you, at the risk of seeming very <laughs> ignorant, is, I mean, I think everyone's probably aware about this idea that all the memories are still there, but we can't retrieve them. But what's really the strongest supporting evidence for those memories being there? What evidence is there other than the Roger Penrose stimulation stuff from the 60s? Well, I can give you an example, uh, if you'd like. Oh, God, sorry. Yeah, I, I do that every time I lean forward. Yeah. I don't remember it for a moment. <laughs> I just can't, you know, we're too old, that's our trouble. Uh, well, there's been a lot of work recently uh, with people w uh, using body-worn cameras. What cameras? Body-worn cameras. So these are cameras you wear around your neck, for example. Ah. Like one we've used it was originally called SenseCam, and it takes photographs in response to sensory changes it detects. Okay? Uh, let's say you go out for lunch with someone, you wear the camera, it'll take maybe about 300 photographs. All right? uh, and then a year later, we come back to you and say, well, do you remember that lunch you had with your friend... Ruth, and you um, I have no idea, I can't remember when we last went out together, so I get you to sit down and look at these photographs, one by one, fairly quickly, a rate of one per second, so it takes you a couple of minutes to review an event that took two hours. You will experience what we call Proustian moments. You'll remember things that you didn't know for a million years you had in your memory. Mm -hmm. And actually those things won't necessarily be things depicted in the photographs. So I'll give you one example, uh, just by way of illustration. And then the larger point, of course, is that all this information is in there. We just can't access it. That's what this is all about. So a, a very skeptical colleague of mine wore this camera at a conference in Australia. And about three months later, we got him to look at some of his movies, we call them. But they're not movies, really. They're just a series of still photographs. And he was walking down a street in Sydney up to the University of New South Wales, where the conference was taking place. Uh, and he's walking past a, a line of cars, and he was looking at these photographs, and he said, well, I'm not remembering anything. I just can't remember anything about it. And then suddenly he said uh, a swear word very loudly as he remembered the song that was playing on his iPod as he was walking down the street mm -hmm. <laughs> three months earlier. Mm -hmm. And there's been quite a bit of work using these very, very powerful, rich bodies of cues which do seem to show that you do return far more than we realise. It may not be everything, but we do seem to. So could, could that mean that um, even when memories have become very, very weak, so that you know, there's a trace there, there's information there, but it's very weak, and so when you try and remember what you were doing in that location on that day three months ago, you don't retrieve it. If you've given the appropriate cues, Yes, even if it's very weak, you can kind of get it. Would you be happy with that interpretation? Well, the bit I'm sorry I have to exception to is I, I don't buy this idea of memories becoming weak. Right. Memory as it, it, it's all to do, weak. I think, with access and cue effectiveness. Right. Uh -huh. so, so, and particularly, so, particularly as we get older, you know, the cues we encounter in the world we've encountered them billions of times before. That's probably one of the reasons they're not very effective at eliciting specific. But if you memories. listen to the nature of our language right now, we're talking about. I'll, I don't make this attribution. If it's not right, then push back. Mm -hmm. that, that memories by retrieval are pulling a card out of a rolodex, and it may be faded ink or not, but it's a card in a rolodex. 
And that's certainly not the case. Mm-hmm. What is the case is memories are active reconstructions of them. Mm-hmm. So it, and it's the same in birdsong. It's not just our special pl- privilege on the planet. This is where a lot of animals and birds are beautiful for this kind of study, I'll tell you if you'd like. But what you do is you make the best sense of what that means. That's why you occasionally have these nominally false memories, because it made sense. I would remember Mary Jo, we've been together for 50 years. But it isn't, and, and push back if I don't have your thought right, but I really love the work, and I believe it. I think what it allows you to is have more cues to actively reconstruct that. Mm-hmm. And we're pretty good at it. We're trying to make sense of it. And I'm going to remember you were sitting on my right, and Christina's on my left, probably with, for a long time. So we're, we're pretty good at reconstructing things, especially if they fit into a normal, environmental, expectable mm, tableau. Schema. Sure, a, t- a schema, perfect. So I, I don't think it's so much like it's a weak memory and you have a better flashlight on it. I just think it's a better access to the reconstructive process that allows us to make the best sense of this uh, experiential tableau we've got inside. He wants to hang a right-hand turn. Well, um, yeah. Go for it. I yeah. think something we all agree upon is... Um, how important memories are for who we are and what we know. Um, and having uh, thought about memories for now about 20 years, I'm getting actually more and more interested in forgetting um, and the virtues of forgetting. Because it seems to me that a normal rate of forgetting, not a pathological, but a normal rate of forgetting may be as important for an explanation for how we cope cognitively mm-hmm. in the world as memory is. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, there's the story about whether or not our storage is finite or not. Depending on what answer one gives to that story, mm-hmm. it becomes important to free up storage space by forgetting. Space. Now, maybe our storage is infinite. I don't know. I, I, I'm not, I don't have a, a horse in that race. Um, But in any case, uh, the retrieval speed and probably also the retrieval reliability Mm -hmm. will improve the smaller the database that has to be sifted through. Um, There also seem to be epistemological advantages to partial forgetting. It's, um, It's easier to have a justified belief when the content is watered down, is diluted, then when the content is very rich, it's much harder to, to know rich contents than, than um, impoverished contents. Um, it may be that um, partial forgetting is what allows us to see patterns. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, may, it may be that it's important for attention. That, you know, if you if everything reminds you of something, it's quite hard to attend on the here and now. But also for new learning. For new learning, correct. It, and and I'm, I'm just speculating. Could it be that partial forgetting is one of the features that strengthens the social bonds? Because if I don't remember X, but I remember that Martin remembers X, then mm-hmm. I become dependent on him, on his memory. Mm-hmm. Perish the thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> it wouldn't help you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was just going to say, just a point. It all depends what you mean by forgetting, really. But from an evolutionary perspective, one might want to say 
that an animal can never know at the time whether it's important to retain a memory of an event or not. Right? So maybe the system's set up in such a way that if stuff gets into long-term memory, it's there. The representations are there that you can combine together, and I completely uh, buy into the constructive idea. I've been arguing about it for 30 years, but I don't use the word reconstruction, just construction. So you can't know what, you, what it is you need to retain. So the system's set up to retain it, but very cleverly what it's done is it's made it difficult for you to access it. Mm -hmm. right? But it can still influence processing. Sure. And this is all based upon a story a friend of mine told me called Gillian Cohen, who was a famous old cognitive psychologist uh, and a very keen horse rider. And she told me she was riding a horse along a canal in Oxford one day, uh, and there was a, a blacksmith's forge there and some sparks came flying out of the window and the horse took fright shied and ran off and it was a, you know quite a dangerous moment for her the next year she was running along the same track on the same horse but the blacksmiths had closed down they knocked down the building and as it got to the very point where it was the horse shied away again sure right now i'm not supposing that the horse could say well you know bad thing happened here a year ago and i'm just repeating it but <laughs> it's the point i want to get at that the information may well be there, but somehow our brains are set up so we don't have to have it delivered consciously all the time. So I don't need to consciously remember, oh, it was last week I parked my car over there when I go to the right. supermarket, therefore this week it must be parked over there. Mm -hmm. Your brain somehow has evolved to cleverly do it for you, but the information is still there. One way it's routinely measured is by a phenomenon you know well called savings. So very often you say, do you remember this? I absolutely don't remember. We study this all the time. We've got papers on it last year where animals show no memory of an event and yet they can relearn that event more rapidly. So it's a variant on the theme of it sort of in there in some way. Another dimension to it that's really important are patterns. I would suggest the horse absolutely didn't remember the time of day. But he sure as hell remembered the, that the, ones, the canals on the left and the blacksmiths on the right. And right. those contexts, and animals have to code context all the time to survive, either a honeybee or a bird or a horse or a human. So, so a lot of what we, the way I think about it loosely about what's retained is not essentially a lookup table, but more like patterns that are, are, are adaptive to now be, and actually this is where Christina's work is important, to be flexible. Because, for example, risk aversion in animals goes up when they're sated, when they're not hungry. Mm. And risk aversion goes down when they're, they're, they take more risks when they're hungry. Mm. Well, that makes perfect sense if you're out foraging, right? Well, it turns out that guys at NYU two years ago found nodes in the brain that explain that. And the way they studied it, it's an amazing young guy that came up with this idea. There was a shared node for, for hunger, and a, share, a node is just a region of the brain where stuff works. There was a shared note for hunger and for risk aversion, and he studied people that did the stock market in countries that celebrated Ramadan. <laughs> Pretty smart. So they're fasting, and they still traded, but the risk aversion changed as they got hungry, or they were willing to take more risk in the market. So it's, you know, these are, when you're out, I'm not just talking about squirrels in the park, I'm talking about your next portfolio. A lot of things that govern our behavior from the memory point of view are also very integrated in our adaptive behaviors. That's, that's sort of the point I was making. Yeah, but I, I agree with the idea that actually the details are lost. There is forgetting. Mm. The, the, this is the way I see it. This is the way um, you know, the, the data we have makes sense. Because if we would remember all the details that we process, 
um, and then they are not accessible, a lot of space is going to be taken up by something that is not even used. And it's easy, as Thomas suggested, to have you know something that is there and recall, and then we make us remake associations of it. And uh, and this is how the memories are not always faithful. So I mean, there there are so many data in this for me suggesting that that's. Um, the most likely explanation. I mean, many memory researchers that would agree with you, it's just I don't. Mm -hmm. And uh, the point is this, you say, how can we remember all these details if they're all in there, a whole lifetime's worth of remembering events? I mean, how is it possible for the brain to store all of that? But maybe the brain doesn't store that much of any given event. I mean, recent work with uh, trauma patients suggests that they retain three to five what they call hotspots, details from their traumatic experience and actually not much else. So when you remember this event we're in today, in a year's time, maybe you remember three or four or five details. Maybe that's, in the end, all that got through, all that got in there. Right? So maybe we're kind of overestimating uh, the information overload kind of story. Mm -hmm. And given how many connections are, there are in the brain and that knowledge is represented in those connections exactly. rather than the neurons, yeah. then there's more than enough processing capacity, I think, to represent an entire life and maybe one or two more, I don't know. Well, certainly in the hippocampus, most folks know the hippocampus, it's just shaped kind of like a big banana curled on itself a bit in our brain. There's a region of it that is involved in pattern completion. That's what it does for a living. You give a little elements and then it puts together stuff and I think it's commensurate with what you're saying is that, that a lot of what we do is, a, I, I'm going back to, I guess, ride that same horse and that is uh, you don't need all the elements for an effective adaptive response to the current. You need enough to reconstruct it to, to then behave appropriately. And so I don't think we should think of memories. I don't even like the fact that we've got 10 to the 13 cells and 10 to the third connections, so there's plenty of room. I mean, yeah, if you like a computer analogy, that's fine, but I, don't, I think it we're, we're much more interesting than that. I think this is a good point to go back to that idea of semanticization and, yeah. and the evolution of memories because at least one take on that is part of what's happening is, is in that evolution of the episodic into the semantic, you're abstracting out the statistical properties and mm -hmm. you talked about a pattern completion. You need to know what the pattern is in order to complete it. Sure. So you need to have a representation of the you know the gist of a corpus of, of experiences the overall structure the rules these are all words that have come up and in order to get in order to abstract that one idea is that you need forgetting right mm -hmm. so you need to yeah. forget the details in order to pull out the statistics the rules the gist and then you have that structure and then maybe when you have a cue that taps into that structure you can complete sure. it and you can maybe you can pull back memories in that way through pattern completion mm -hmm. that might have in some sense been forgotten. And by the way, I would just make it a bit more complicated and qualify that by saying, you know, I believe in this process, but I also believe that you can have both. So I think that you can have the forgetting and the just abstraction process, but you can also still hold on to those, those memories that in some sense, in one system they've been forgotten, but in another system they're still there, and so maybe that's what's happening. Maybe you get that gist information, and then the pattern completion can allow you to pull it out from another system, mm -hmm. and that could be closer to your mm. perspective, I, I think. I don't know. 
I mean, what, what got me started was um, at Irvine, we have a group, um, um, a group of patients with super episodic memories. It's a Jim McGaugh's group. Correct. Yeah. Um, and uh, one of the striking features is the IQ is not any higher than that of ordinary subjects. And most of them are unhappy. Some of them. They Actually, there are some happy ones as well. Uh, but some, I mean, the famous ones are unhappy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I don't mean to interrupt you. But, but uh, you're right. Um, but that I found an interesting feature. You know, if, if what you say is correct, that the episodic memories are sort of the material out of which semantic knowledge is built, why are people with a much larger episodic database not able to get smarter. Perform better. Maybe they have sleep problems. Do they have sleep <laughs> problems? <laughs> <laughs> That's a I good point. That's a good It's very interesting. Many of them are OCD. Many of them have kept diaries since they were four or five, and they're OCD. There's a big OCD component to it. And not all are unhappy. You're right. The one I've met, too, the famous woman is, is quite unhappy. But, but you make a point that's really interesting for the group to think about, and I'd love to hear what the, our guests outside of us think about this. I don't think that memory and intelligence or smart or whatever the word is we map onto each other whatsoever. Adaptive, getting around, being clever, that's fine. But if you, there, there's lots of studies in different domains that run that parameter out, like cognitive ability or problem solving, and it may or may not map onto how well you remember facts. It much, it's better, often it's, it's much better predictor of how you use facts. Yeah. It's not how many can you get at, but how can you now be clever? That's the whole diversity thing. If ever you read one book this year, read something called The Difference. It's a guy, there's this whole fr frame about diversity, and we're doing a favor by getting diverse folks in there. It, the trade-off is excellence. Nonsense. What it is is you get more diverse folks to variance compression because you don't have consensus bias anymore. You got a plumber and you got an Eskimo and you got a psychiatrist and when they solve a problem, you get a, a, a female Puerto Rican and you get a male from, from the Bronx, you're gonna have a lack consensus bias and you get a much better problem solved and you wouldn't say any of them had better memories. Mm -hmm. They just bring more tools to the toolkit. Yeah. I think I just gave a speech. I'm sorry. <laughs> can, can I comment on That's that? Yes, yes, you may. Um, so I think, the, I think, so you've just said you don't think there's any link between memory and intelligence IQ, essentially. I, think I don't think they map onto one another. I think that there is an interesting relationship. Um, and I will tell you what I think it is. Sure. Um, and I think it all comes down to sleep, as most things do. <laughs> I think I should take a nap. When I'm <laughs> no, let me say no, it first, I, and I'm then not. you can take the nap no, to consolidate. So I can remember. That's, yeah. Good, good. Um, that's, but so, so we were talking about this abstraction of just process. Um, yeah. We actually know that um, a, a stage of your sleep called slow wave sleep is, is important for this. So we know that um, memories are replayed in slow wave sleep. They tend to be memories that are related to each other from the same corpus of information, the same okay. types of experiences. Uh, there's a hypothesis that there's, you know, the overlapping components of those memories, the shared elements will be strengthened more, and then when everything is downscaled, which also happens in this slow wave sleep, you're left with a representation of the commonalities, mm -hmm. the gist, the schema, the structure, the statistics, what we've been talking about. So that process, there's quite a bit of evidence that that happens. And people are better at solving those kind of problems when they've been allowed to sleep. It's predicted by the amount of sleep they had and, you know, mm -hmm. on and on. 
So here's the link to IQ, to intelligence. This is, this is complete speculation. Good. Um, I like it. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of fun. Um, so I would speculate that if you, if you can't build up schemas efficiently, if you don't build up a strong schema of the world, if you don't build your semantic knowledge well, mm-hmm. you can't make good predictions. Mm-hmm. You can't integrate new information as well. Mm-hmm. You, that means that you can't process information. You can't, you know, you, you kind of get deficits across the board if you have a problem with that, mm-hmm. which means you probably have lower IQ. I mean, if you're not taking in information as well, you're not using it as efficiently to make predictions. You're not. It's going to impact on these abilities, right? So, um, could it be that if people, if they are not, if there's some disruption in this sleep? processing of information to abstract out just generalities to build these schemas. And if that happens across your whole life, Mm -hmm. from infancy onward, where you're building up all your semantic knowledge, then eventually, you know, you start to have a deficit and you start to show. And sure enough, there's at least a handful of studies showing um, links between sleep spindles, which are markers of memory replay and non-REM and slow-wave sleep, and IQ. It's not 100%. The literature is a bit messy, but it is there. So there's a hint towards this, but no one has really tested it properly. So I I think they are I wouldn't disagree. I'm sorry. I I wouldn't disagree for a moment. Mm. I think that where where I would intersect, sort of orthogonal of the conversation, is what we mean by IQ. And if you mean Mm. dealing with facts that are required for problem solving, then you're golden. Could I I give you a take on that? Yeah, Because I think a distinction we'd want to make here that's made in the area is between crystallized and fluid Mm. IQ. Now, when we're talking about memory, we're probably talking about crystallized IQ. Mm. So if I can remember the decision we made at the meeting last week, then my view is probably going to carry the day at the meeting this week. You know, people who have good long-term memories probably influence things like social decision-making and emotional IQ in important ways. Whereas fluid intelligence, which is your ability to kind of solve problems and things like that, mathematical problems, you know, those logical problems, etc., probably doesn't depend upon mm-hmm. having a, a good long-term memory of your life. So, there so are that captures much, in much more elegant phrase. What I was trying to say mm-hmm. is that there's a lot of ways that we would call IQ or problem-solving intelligence, mm-hmm. and a certain class of those would absolutely depend on the semantic episodic weaving right. of this tapestry, and others would, would not. So I, yeah. I only am, am pushing back on the, the canonical representation is more facts, better, mm-hmm. smarter. And it, that, that's a small part of it. Can I, can I interrupt again, just briefly, just because I want to mention this. We've got one of these guys with a super memory. I do, yeah. studied him. Yeah, he's a brilliant guy. Extraordinary. He's a, he's, a, he's a kind of senior manager of the civil service in England. Completely normal guy. Two kids at university. Uh, his wife considered him completely normal, except he has a slightly unusual interest in numbers. Uh, it turns out he's a calendar calculator. And what that means is if you give him a date, let's say, I don't know, June the 23rd, 1971, what day of the week was that? He will tell you straight away it was a Wednesday. And he'll tell you what happened and who won the rugby game and what they had yeah, for dinner that we night. We did this test with him. We put together a load of facts that we got from various yearbooks. And we said to him, OK, he's, he's a day. Tell us what day it is. He was 100% right on over 150 of these items. And he could tell us what big items are in the news on that day. Mm-hmm. In fact, he was so good, right, we took our items from a thing called the Collins Yearbook. 
And uh, there was a famous comedian uh, in, uh, in England who died on stage called Tommy Cooper. <coughs> and we had this date in, and the, the famous event he had to tell us was Tommy Cooper died on stage. And I, we, we scholarly, Martin, and we were talking to him, and I said, actually, you did, you did get one wrong there, which I was quite surprised at. And he said, well, what was it? So Tommy Cooper dying on stage. And he said, well, that's the wrong date. You've got the wrong date down there. <laughs> and so we went to the web and looked at the college book, and the college book had printed the wrong date. Isn't that crazy? It's amazing. Yeah. But he can remember autobiographical events, and it looks like the way he does it, his memory is completely coded up in terms of calendar time. So, I mean, yeah, we all, all research tells us that people don't retain calendar dates in right. their memories, very rarely. But his memory is completely somehow linked to calendar time. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, he's, he's an amazing yeah. character, but otherwise completely normal. your view about retrieval? Sorry? Your view about retrieval. Does this kind of thing reinforce it? Uh, good question. I hadn't looked at it from that direction, but... Say yes, it's your yeah. view, dude. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, absolutely. <laughs> no, but that, isn't that what you were saying, that the information is there and he has better access to it? That yeah. Well, yeah, that we do think that because he can use these very specific cues, which, you know, date and day of the week. Do you know what's really interesting about recalling? In, there's an anecdotal story that Susan Corkin, who is the, the, the woman who studied HM extensively, Brenda Miller's student, and she tells a story that actually I believe. I never saw HM, but I really believe it. Remember, he doesn't remember for one data the next. So if Ed walked in and said, hi, I'm Ed. He said, nice to meet you. You chat. He'd be able to work with Ed. The next day, he's never seen him before. Right? If you tell, Susan said this was more than once. She would tell HM a joke, and he'd love it. And she'd tell it to him the next day, and he didn't think it was funny. <laughs> and he didn't remember it. He didn't remember the joke. Didn't remember the content. He just didn't think it was funny. So we, I'm, that's chastening to me. We've got to be careful about putting bolts in buckets, right? There's a lot more. The brain's smarter than we are. So there's a, a nuanced kind of encoding that clearly is going on that's well past the categories we have to impose on it to study it. The sleep work is beautiful. And you've got to put boundaries on it so you can actually study it. And did she push it further and say I don't one know. day he found it funny and the next I don't know it. whether she did. It was completely anecdotal. But, but, but there were these very interesting, quirky things where it wasn't quite as canonical as it seemed. I mean, he was devastated. If he got lost, he couldn't find his way home. But nonetheless, there, there, it's not, there are really interesting partial amnesias where folks will have phenotypes that are extremely interesting. And they don't forget everything, but they'll just forget some things. And you go, well, maybe that reflects how you've categorized them in the front end. One doesn't know. But what I'm really saying is the brain's smarter than we are. So we have to impose structure on it to talk about it and to study it. And that's wonderful. Just like in analysis, I'm sure well, you've got to impose the structure. When you say the structure. brain is smarter than we are, it is our brain. <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly the point, yeah. Because we don't but know it, yeah. I want to ask you something, because I didn't get a chance to ask you earlier when you were describing it. Uh, when you say the events of the day are then repeated during sleep, slow sleep, and uh, that helps with memory, how are those events selected? Is, is the whole day played back? Mm -hmm. is it's a really important question, I think. Um, what we know, we know from working rats, where they actually <coughs> measure the replay of these memories with embedded electrodes, so they're looking at populations of cells. Um, we know that things that are more salient <coughs> tend to be replayed more. So, 
Um, rats replay trajectories, then they're running along. You can see um, with cells that represent spatial locations fire in order as they're moving towards a target. And those trajectories, the ones that are moving towards food or a reward, will be replayed a lot more than trajectories that are not. Um, so we know that. We, in humans, we know that if you train people on two, two say, lists of words, and then you tell them, um, we're only going to test you on list A. Tomorrow we're going to test you on list A, and how well you do is going to determine how much money you get paid, for instance. So forget about list B. And then, of course, we test them on both lists. They improve much more on the list overnight on the list where they've been told you'll be tested. So it's more salient. It's more, mm -hmm. um, and yeah, so it, it does seem that salient things, also emotional things, seems to improve So the more. coding importance in some way. Yeah, and that makes sense in an evolutionary context. It makes sense that if we have a mechanism for selectively strengthening some memories, but not all of them, and you know, at the same time, things are being forgotten across sleep as well. Um, so then we, we should strengthen the ones that are important, and the salient ones are the important ones. So emotions would be much more important than facts? Things that have an emotional uh, Facts that have an emotional them. impact, importance. Yeah. More than facts. Yeah, so it's important to remember that last time I ate this, I got sick. Or last time I, you know, last time I did this, my, my partner was happy. You know, these are important things. but. Other things that have no emotional link. Why should I remember well, that, them? Yeah. Well, because we need to have facts. We need to have facts, but the emotion is modulating mm -hmm. the mm -hmm. formation of that memory and this, this storage, the consolidation. There are, there are many studies showing that emotions and hormones released by stress or arousal uh, can modulate memory strength. Right. This is, they have done many studies in humans as well as in animal models. I mean, we are talking about Jim McGaugh, Larry Cahill, um, but then many others in animal models. Um, but biologically speaking, that's obvious. I mean, if you think about the biology, we need to remember more or for longer what's important. So if we encounter a danger, we don't want to forget after mm -hmm. the, the single encounter, if, if that's very important, we better remember that if we get too close to a lion, we are in danger. Um, Actually, I mean, it's obvious the biological so Anxiety-type situations are the ones that are most liable to be repeated in, during sleep? Because that would be one of the major emotions. Sure. I, I don't know. I'm saying sure. Yeah, she's the Your intuition makes sense. It makes sense. Um, I don't think that anxiety specifically has been studied. I mean, it would have to be in humans, because that sounds like a, a human kind of emotion. Um, well, and I, I, I think that, yes, people would agree with that, but I don't know if there's empirical data to definitely support it and say that's One thing that's that right. Christina said that's really important, you mentioned Jim McGaugh, who's a beloved guy in the field. We all know him well. And he, in the day, he found something that's very important. It's almost the reverse of how Christine and I study memory, and if we block trans, if we block protein synthesis, we block memory. Jim found that after a trial's over, he can improve the memory. 
is over. Now the episode itself is over. The animal's already been there, it's learned it, and after that, if you do, maybe think of it as our drugs, uh, drugs or hormones that are involved in arousal, you can after, so you would think you're only encoding when you're in the episode, right? You know, I've left the library, the book's closed, but it turns out that for some length of time, you can, it's called post-trial enhancement, you can make the memory stronger by virtue of giving animals hormones that are involved in, in, in um, uh, emotion. So there, the modulation is a really fundamental thing in our world, is that there is, there's, if you can think of it, and it's only a metaphor, there's streams of like information, but the volume goes up and down. You can tune the volume up and down depending on it. And it's really important to have the volume low on a lot of things because then you're not riveted by your world. But sometimes you need that volume up, and it may well be that during the day when that volume's up, that will trigger the kinds of things that you want to revisit in, during sleep. But I'm just guessing with you, mm -hmm. but it makes some sense. I think it is also in everybody experience. Uh, we mm. do remember better the memories that are linked to some emotion. Absolutely. At least access to well, it's been, it. It's a bit more complicated than that, isn't it? Because sure, sure. But, if but the emotion the, the, is too strong, you suffer amnesia. Right, but this is also being studied by the same groups, right? So they show that if uh, the emotional regulation is too strong, there is the, the opposite effect. So a little bit of stress is good. Right. Too much is bad. There is this inverted U Quite function that describes memory retention, but complex function retention uh, yeah. with, the, with the stress level. If we, you know, if we look at the relationship between stress level and performance, that's... Uh, how it, it is expressed. So a little bit is good to remember, to perform better. Too much is bad. Yeah, so I mean, when somebody says, you know, I, I keep remembering a lot of irrelevant facts, mm -hmm. in point of fact, they may only be irrelevant because he thinks they're irrelevant, but from your <laughs> study, it would show that they were relevant? even a condition that's to do with remembering too many irrelevant facts, particularly number type facts? Mm -hmm. Does anyone know? Well, there are, there are patients that can't habituate. So right in this room right now, most of us don't feel the clothes in our body. Most of us don't hear that. You will now when I say yeah. it, but you don't hear that background. Right? So we, we are, it's important for normal animals getting around the planet to learn what to ignore. And you don't even learn it. it just, it's built into the system. Some folks can't do that. I don't know the names of them, but, and, and I think you're right. So some of them just can't stop thinking about stuff. And, and it, it actually is paralytic because, you know, if I'm going to turn and talk to Penny, well, if I'm still fixated on what we're doing, then I can't select my attention like a flashlight. It's more like I'm constantly bathed in it. And that exists also in memories, so kind of streams of irrelevant information yeah. invading, yeah. you know, triggered by any cue, you know, everything you might have ever known about this kind of carpet or, you know, that kind of ceiling or paint. It's a bit like this. the super learners. They have these mm -hmm. kind of memories. At least some of them are, are terribly distracted by it. Not mm -hmm. the least of which, it's important to forget things that are painful. And they remember, you know, when their puppy died when they were five, and, and it still hurts. And mm. so for, in some ways, it's not a bad thing to forget, or at least have it blunted enough we can move on. So that brings us to something else which might be interesting to talk about, which is PTSD, and mm. this kind of inability to remove the emotional content from traumatic memories. Um, um, I mean, that's something that is interesting from a sleep perspective as well because there's one idea that one of the things that happens in sleep to memories is that the emotions can be decoupled from the memory. So you might, you might have been mugged, you know, and it might be that sleeping 
you know, over probably not one night, but a year of, of sleeps might be strengthening the memory for that. You can still remember all the details of what happened, but helping you to dissociate the emotion so that when you remember it, mm-hmm. you don't have the physiological <coughs> reaction. You're not as upset. And um, of course, people with post-traumatic stress disorder have trouble doing this, or they can't do it. They can't decouple. And these emotions invade, and they, have, they can have nightmares, and they can have kind of flashbacks. And it can be um, really disruptive to people's lives. People can commit suicide well, because of this. Christina has the most articulate kind of view on that with I know you don't like reconsolidation, but whatever the, the, the mm-hmm. construct we use to talk about it, I think that you thought deeply about that. Uh, yeah, so, so uh, what reconsolidation told the field, uh, we can talk about <laughs> disagreements. We will. Uh, uh, we will. Uh, is that when memory is retrieved, it becomes fragile again. Right? And so this was uh, an interesting point for clinical translation for application, one is PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. The other is addiction. Addicts also have very strong and persistent and repetitive memories, and they can relapse if they are brought back in the context where they used, even after detox. This is how they uh, more likely relapse, is when they go back and they remember of the effect of uh, the drug. Uh, so PTSD w- was one of the fields in which reconsolidation was like, oh wow, this is going to be a new way to treat these type of disorders, and has not been so, um, uh, you know, re- resolutive or, or, or positive as we would mm-hmm. we would have thought, uh, because most of the studies in reconsolidation have been done with normal, I call them normal, let's say adaptive aversive memories, fear conditioning, and those are not model of PTSD. So this is to say that that's exactly what you're saying, Mm -hmm. that the quality of the memories of PTSD uh, are different than Mm. adaptive, aversive, um, fear memories. And so we definitely need to understand more of what is going on in this subject that lead to PTSD in a population, uh, trauma leads to, PSD, to, to PTSD in about 20% of the, popu- the, the cases, the number of uh, subjects that become PTSD. Um, for example, from war zones or from uh, you know, very uh, profound trauma that they experience. Uh, there are a number of other um, features attached to it. Uh, previous history seems to be very important. Mm. Uh, and that, you know, we, d- we don't know enough of what really leads to PTSD. Mm-hmm. What is the etiology of PTSD? That, that's important. And the understanding of what's different in those memories. Well, there's, I mean, one comment I could make is, so there is this idea that um, replaying those memories, this is a, it's a hypothesis that comes from Matt Walker at Berkeley, um, the, his idea is that replaying those emotional trauma memories in REM sleep specifically um, allows this decoupling of emotion. And that's because in REM sleep, you have very low levels of a neurotransmitter called norepinephrine, mm-hmm. um, which 
is if you have very low levels of that, you shouldn't be able to have physiological responses to things. So you shouldn't have that increase in heart rate, the sweating, pupil dilation, these things that are associated with a stress response, an emotional response. And so that means you're essentially replaying the content of the memory without that response, and so decoupling. So that's his hypothesis, and there is some support for it. There's also some counter-evidence. There sure is. Interesting, yeah, there's quite a bit of counter-evidence. But the interesting thing about it is um, that, irrespective of whether that hypothesis is right, certainly um, people who are predisposed to suffer from PTSD have abnormal REM sleep. So the properties of that sleep Mm are different. And in rats, if, if um, they're forced to go into REM sleep at a time when the norepinephrine is high, so it hasn't been able to come down as it should because they've been too stressed, then they will show PTSD-like symptoms that actually persist over months um, chronically. So there is, you know, it's, I think it's a tricky area. I think it's complicated, and I'm not completely a proponent of this hypothesis, mm, mm. but I think Something is going on yeah. there. Well, it's not it's not yet understood, as we mm. were saying. But yeah. what you what you are saying, it will make sense with, um, perhaps that previous history plays a role into sure. it, right? Okay. So, uh, question time. Yeah. What is known about the retrieval process, uh, in particular? How come when I can't remember something, and then an hour later I'm in the shower, it comes to me when I'm not even trying to think of it? You bet. Tip of the tongue phenomenon. It's, you're, it's so normal. Everybody experiences it. The last thing you want to do is try to keep pushing when, on the site, and then you turn. Or Mary Jo and I once were trying to remember the French lieutenant's woman, and I remember I liked the actress, and she, I could see her cape, and it, her name rhymed with peep. And it was Merle Street, but it was a while back that I could pull it out. So you probably have a, a cognitive framework for that, but it is absolutely common to... Does anybody to, know what's going on there and why that happens? There's a metaphor. I, the answer is I don't. But the metaphor <laughs> is that if you start pursuing, if you see bifurcations of, of a tree, you're just trying to find something, the further down a road away from the, the domain, the further you get locked into the wrong strategy, and if you just stop, and the system can kind of reset, you can get back to it. But that's pure metaphor. I, maybe my colleagues know. I don't, it's absolutely real. Everybody in the world experiences it, and it pisses you off, doesn't it? I mean, <laughs> but it's who we are. Well, it certainly is normal. Uh, I mean, one thing it illustrates is that the retrieval process carries on non-consciously. Absolutely. Right? Which in itself is quite an interesting thing. And it's associative. Why did I know it rhymed with something? Because we break up memories. I think you made this point earlier. Mm. We break up memories, not consciously, into lots of different things. It can be sound, it could be color. So that it, why would I know it rhymed with something? That's not uncommon. And it's because although we codify it as like the movie, that's not how my brain did it. My brain already has distributed that memory in lots of different places where there might be a sound associated with it or a smell like you were talking in sleep. So. Another issue actually related to it is how do you know it's the right answer? Because <laughs> it feels right. Because <laughs> it feels right. <laughs> I never thought I'd hear a philosopher saying that. <laughs> I, I, that that's not my answer, but. Uh, I, yeah. You may have answered this question, and my hearing didn't pick it. Yeah. Uh, you may have answered this, and I apologize if you did. I, I couldn't hear everything. Um, were you saying that 
one's nature, if there is such a thing, in part determines whether memories are positive or negative. Is, is, does it, did you talk to that at all? <coughs> whether an underlying personality determines the nature of a memory. We can, have, mm. we can both go to Coney Island and go on the Ferris wheel. And well, I'll mm. remember it as a very upsetting experience. I had ex you were next to me, and you'll remember it as a very positive experience. Is there well, any knowledge about it, Yeah, that I mean, well, what we haven't really discussed, really, is the relationship between memories and goals. What? Memories and goals, your goals, while you do things in the world, right? Your memories reflect those goals, but we don't always, cannot always identify them. It's probably how goal attainment is hindered or promoted by the experience that leads in part to a positive or negative memory. So maybe one factor. There'll be others as well. Thank you. Uh, I'm primarily interested in biology. Um, so I have a question. Assuming we are in this world to survive and um, possibly in utero, perhaps soon thereafter, uh, we accumulate experience that could be both emotionally, physically painful, and we want to avoid. Uh, to what degree does intentionality to survive come into play in possibly, I'll use the word select, but there may not be an actual choosing event, but the process. The individual wants to survive. What's going on chemically or biologically with that individual? Hmm. Everybody's looking at me now. I'm, I'm looking at Christine. <laughs> Everybody looks at Christine. And <laughs> um, no, it's, it's a very important question, right? Where, where does it start? See? I feel inspired. <laughs> the answer from the angels. Where, where does it start, uh, uh, the process that uh, really selects what's going on so that there is survival? Intentionality, I don't know. You know I, don't, I really don't, I, I don't know how to comment on that. Uh, biologically speaking, is, I think evolution has, set, has selected a number of mechanisms that that's what they do. So if there is an experience, they respond in a way that will promote survival. Does that answer? Well, okay. I, I have my own experience, but I won't go into it. But I'm also curious about the role of learning yes. with memory. That, for example, uh, the monarch butterfly, it takes three generations to complete a cycle. Do you, are you familiar with the monarch studies? They, they live in the summer months in Ontario and the Midwest. They winter in Mexico, but in between, they go through another whole life stage. It's not even the same parents, grandparents, you know, it's going, skipping a generation. So there's incredible information being encoded into these butterflies to get them through a complete cycle to mm. reproduce. Oh, I'm sure. I mean, I, I, I don't think we are so, like, uh, separate and better evolved uh, throughout the scale, I think there is a continuum in the evolution, and we are surprised to see how much we can actually uh, then see in, in lower 
animals, so to speak, you know, in less evolved animals. I think these mechanisms are very intrinsic in the evolution. Um, I mean, I, I, I don't know how to answer your question. I mean, I, I, I'm not surprised that we see these complex survival mechanisms in butterflies, in C. elegans, in aplysia, uh, and throughout the evolutionary scale. Thank you. A comment and then a question to the panel. Um, early in the history of physical sciences, we started to understand emergent phenomena like pressure uh, in terms of models having to do with things like statistical dynamics. And so we started to learn the notion that unlike the early reductionist interpretations of nature, we could have phenomenon that came out of these sort of very nonlinear phenomena. Uh, so today we are applying simplified models of the brain to problems uh, in recognition and can do things in machines that were not doable merely 10 years ago. Now there are some interesting problems with these approaches. Uh, they're intractable in a sense. That is to say we can build systems that our mathematicians and physicists can actually describe how they work if you investigate this. But nevertheless, um, it does smack a bit of reductionism in a new sense. However, my sense in talking to brain scientists frequently is that reductionism is sort of uh, uh, unwelcome. Is it the belief of the panel that ultimately we will have a sort of, for certain segments of the brain, because the brain is like the body made up of many systems, but for certain computational components of the brain or uh, information representation models of the brain, we, will, will we have a fundamental calculus of information and perception? What is the panel's position on this? I'll weigh in on it because let's it's start, really let's start a, from, from, it's, from philosophy. It's a, it's a very deep question. <clears throat> One of the ways that this is impacting the field right now is I'll cartoon the position in order to comment on it is that if we understood every connection in the brain, there's 10 to the 16th connections, do the math. If we under, and they're dynamic, they change with time, so they're not just solder joints. If we understand every connection, then we'll understand the brain. <clears throat> and there is pushback from that point of view. So it's a, it's a, in, in, scientists don't have facts, we have opinions, and we struggle with making our facts turn into something that's coherent. That said, I would frame it the following. It's absolutely necessary, but not sufficient. So to have that corpus of information for a complete understanding, now we would turn to you to say what that does mean. I don't know what a complete understanding means. To have those, the understanding of the connectivity is absolutely necessary in the long run, but insufficient to then explain the way it works. And, and, and so what, what we do is, as scientists, and I, I would fall in the reductionist camp in a heartbeat, <clears throat> is provide modules. That is, I'll give you a, mo a molecular module for how genes are turned on, to store a memory anywhere. And now you can import that to the cortex and have that one kind of memory. You can import that to the hippocampus and use another. And I would never for a moment say that my simple animal is just a, uh, is a human but fewer neurons. It's the, the rules change, absolutely change. The computational rules change. But what we can do is say, well, what are the, comp because we really believe in evolution, what has evolution hung on to? She's pretty smart. So she's hung on to transcription and translation and phosphorylation and protein folding and pre-transcriptional modeling and et cetera up and down to humans, right on down to, to simple animals. So no one would, I would never equate what we study to anything close to a human experience. But what we can do is get building blocks. 
that can inform the computational rules of a given domain in the brain that does balance or does encoding in memory. In the limit case, though, is it in a sense a provable assertion the way, for instance, statistical mechanics or relativity? It is, in, but the, the, the key word is the limit, of course. But in, in reality, if you think of a machine that has 10 to the 16th connections that change with time, and it's a pretty complex challenge. So sure, yeah, the, 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 I, I, I was at a conference as all philosophers. And the idea was around, if we understood all the connections, we were, and I was asked to make some comments at the front. When you're a dean, you asked to do this. You talk about stuff you know nothing about. I do it every day. And, 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 but what was funny was, it was right when, do you remember when, when is it called Big Blue? What was the, the IBM robot? Big Blue? Watson. The, mm -hmm. Watson. And he was on Jeopardy. Right? And he won. You know why Watson won? Because he had shorter reaction time. It wasn't that he was smarter. He could just be faster. And there was one question, I'll see if the room can get it, that Watson, and I'll drill back on why this is important. Watson blew something that Jennings got, and, and Watson blew, and it's the following. You know in Jeopardy how you get a statement and then you, you recast the, catch, the question? And it was, I'm a city with two airports, one named for a famous World War II general, and one named for a famous World War II battle. What city am I? I didn't know the answer. Anybody know? Way to go. That's right. So you've got Chicago's O'Hare, and and, uh, and and Midway, yeah. But Big Blue didn't get that. And they asked the woman who built him. She knew every connection, right? She put him together. I mean, there's a whole team, but she, why did he do that? She said, I haven't got a clue. I don't know why I didn't know that. So, it's referred to as a tractability issue. Well, I mean, but she knows all the connections, right? She knew, she, she knew every diode. She knew every, and yet, nonetheless, she could only approximate why Big Blue blew it. No pun intended. So I guess what I'm getting at is just knowing the connectivity would be extraordinarily helpful, but it ain't going to get us all the way. So it won't bring us to a statistical mechanics of thought. I, I would think not. But, but what it might do is it might you're, be you're something, something like quantum mechanics is going to help us. And already people are taking a quantum approach to various forms of cognition. Quantum decision making is a big uh, right. area at the moment. In a basic but, sense, yeah. yeah. Well, the thing about uh, quantum is it has these emergent properties. And obviously the brain's going to have those as well. <coughs> Without knowing what those are, you're not going to be able to make sense, as you're saying, of yeah. what that's going on. So it just we need to get smarter about our physics would be my answer. How do philosophers add something? Well, I, I think it would be great if reductionism worked. Uh, I would, I would rejoice, but it's, I don't think we even have a way of seeing how it could work at this present moment. I mean, take... Take some of the um, the metaphors that have been used uh, in this panel discussion to describe the memory process. Um, you know, the notion of a trace was passed around. We have no, not the faintest idea of how to think about a memory trace if that is meant to be a, a representational item. Uh, what should that be? What should that be? I mean, if if connectionism is true, which I suppose it is, then there are no representational items stored. You mentioned again and again that we shouldn't think of the memory as, a, as an index card. Absolutely true. But how are representations stored? We don't have, at least as... Some folks talk about are as weights. So yeah. isn't a single synapse has it, but in a computational sense, there's a number of shifting of weights that allow a, a network to recreate. Yeah, but... It's what still that, a metaphor. What that means is that whatever input you put into the system, oh, sure. it's the content of that input. And that, of course, is different when you recall than when you, what you originally had. Absolutely. Uh, so there <coughs> wouldn't be anything stored. The notion of this idea of storage goes out of the window 
when you take connectionism seriously, at least as far as I can tell. Mm. So, yeah, okay. I think we don't even know how to answer this question, but it's a great question. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Hi, uh, I'm a bit of a passionate hobbyist about cognitive neuroscience, and I'm uh, the head of a small software company, so I actually agree with a lot of his points, which are that uh, these talks are so great because uh, there are so many dimensions to knowing something that having people from various uh, disciplines, you really get to see the shape of something when everyone speaks. Um, but uh, computer science is playing such a hard and fast game with this stuff that it it seems uh, it seems like a great opportunity to have someone who's uh, a very accomplished computer scientist on the panel. You know, like when you were speaking about there was a mm -hmm. a gentleman at your uh, college that has a very uh, locked to a calendar uh, personal memory of things. That's very much like a directory. And if you had every file that you ever did connected on to which day they were, of course you could access it, right? I mean, everyone has computers with so many things, or the uh, gentleman with hyperacusism, you know, uh, in computer systems we hide things that we don't think are important for the user to know, and that thing being broken would be them being overwhelmed, or um, just everything down the line, like or uh, converting memories and long-term memories when you go to sleep, right? That's been happening in digital audio for decades now, uh, called bouncing to disk, you know? So there, there seems like there's so many parallels and there's so many interesting ways to, to kind of look at it. I was just wondering if any of you intentionally seek out computer scientists as well to kind of bounce ideas off of. You bet. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's a deep, it's a, I mean, it's a very deep part of our field. The Society for Neuroscience has about 42,000 members uh, all over the world. And our typical meeting, we just in Chicago had 29,000 people show up, so there's a lot of folks. And a significant chunk of those folks is what fall into the class of what you're calling computer science. They're, they're computational scientists, they're connectionist scientists, but they absolutely bring that to the table. And, and it's not just building the metaphor. It really informs how we think about things. I mean, well, yeah. they're, they're, one, of, one of the most interesting fellows that I've run into down at NYU is a guy named Paul Glimpshire, who studied what he called neuroeconomics. It's now called decision making. And that maps on everything from risk aversion to addiction, things we've talked about today. That came from a computational analysis. So he's got economists, philosophers, psychologists, neuroscientists, and hardcore folks in Quarant that do nothing but number crunch. And, and the aggregate is extraordinarily exciting. That's, that's why we're blessed to do this. No one of us have a handle on the truth, but when you get a bunch of people together, it's uh, amazing they pay, pay us to do it. But it goes the other way as well. I think it's worth mentioning. I mean, of course, it's incredibly useful for us to look, look to computer scientists, um, but it's also incredibly useful for them to look to the structure of the brain. Right. So that's oh, something sure. that you're probably aware of that's happening. Um, for instance, in Manchester, where I am at the moment, that they've um, constructed a... A, a computer that does parallel processing with, um, it's called Spinnaker, yep. and it's built out of thousands of mobile phone chips, each of them representing a few neurons, and yep. these, so it's, it's mimicking the structure of the brain right. somewhat, you know, to some extent um, more closely, and it has phenomenal processing abilities because it's this parallel processor, which is not how most computers are. Right, so the, um, what I would uh, add to that would be <clears throat> 
we always kind of look to nature first to get the idea, and then we engineer out mm -hmm. the inefficiencies, right? So, like, you see a flying bird, and you make a plane, and then you make a faster plane by taking away some of the bird parts, right? Um, and that happened a lot with computers. Like, in, uh, in the 90s, the, the Cray supercomputer breakthrough was structuring it like the brain is, because that shortened uh, travel time, actually, for all the signals to coordinate into, the, uh, like, a central hub unit and try to, you know make sense of things, but um, I think I think what's really exciting about it now, like so for, for parallel processing, right, um, how did computers eventually get to the ability where they could drive a car, which used to be this artificial intelligence holy grail, and then it just accidentally happened in the background, right? Um, we got that way because people got really good at um, GPGPU, general purpose graphics card, massively parallel processing because humans are just pattern recognition kind of monsters, right? We're super fast at it. So when we finally had enough parallel cores analyzing video images like on the fly, we could have it track better. So like um, it seems uh, the the cell phone thing, I'm not not the cell phone thing. The Spinnaker. The spinnaker, the cluster of low wattage nodes that you're speaking of, um, is that doing a specific kind of research project or is that it exists in itself using these low wattage chips, the project? It, it, it's, it was a project to right. build it, as I understand, but now it's being used for projects. Mm -hmm. So it has been constructed as something that looks a bit more like the brain right. when it's a computer. Um, and now people are trying its ability to perform different kinds right. of tasks. Um, so it goes both ways. One right. thing you brought up that maps directly on what Penny just said is the field writ large is driven two ways. One conception and one is technically. And, and in, in, I wouldn't have the vocabulary to tell you what it was like 10 years ago. If I sat down with Christina 10 years ago and talked about what we're doing in our labs right now, in our labs right now, we, we wouldn't have the vocabulary for that. So the, the techniques can't explain, but they can sure be drivers and open up windows. We're, so all of you are seeing me and seeing each other right now through your eyes, and your eyes have a retina at the back that's processing that, and there's a molecule in your retinas called opsin that is allowing that signal, like that brown jacket, to turn into a neural signal. You can take that molecule, you can put it in a neuron, attach it to whatever you want, shine a light on it, and turn it on. So now we have a technique called optogenetics, where you can turn things on and off in a complicated network, where we just turn on everybody in this room whose name begins with M, right? Before it was impossible to do it, so you can put uh, these techniques around. Now, they're parlor tricks if you just stop there. But now, really smart folks team up together with those technically driven folks of how can I interrogate memory, and for example, how can I f record a cluster of cells in this thing called the amygdala that's important for emotion, and they change with an emotional memory, like Christina studies. And then later I can activate those with this light and bring the memory back and have the animal literally as if I've just turned the memory on in the brain and I just shined light on its brain. Couldn't have, not even, couldn't have done it. 10 years ago we didn't have the vocabulary for that. So the kinds of computational things you're mentioning can dramatically, non-linearly boost the field when they give us the ability to ask a question at more granularity. Right. Thank you. Thank you so much, guys. Hi. Um, I have sort of a two-part question. My first question is with regard to the, the idea of focus, sort of what happens when 
one orchestrates a situation for the recall of memory. And from your discussion, it seems like, you know, it's, it's quite likely that what that means is, is orchestrating a certain level of, of sort of chemical stress. Um, but then I wonder, and I confess a bit of ignorance with, with regard to the effects of meditation, but I, there's sort of the popular trope of that, of research in, in, into meditation now, I think, is this idea that it increases your ability to focus, it increases your memory, but also it sort of decreases your stress level. And so I wonder, you mm. know, are they, are they, you know, are focused and the effects of meditation, are they sort of um, affecting one's ability to recall memories from different angles, or are they sort of, I, I don't know what you might have to say. Uh, what do, what do you, exactly do you mean by meditation? Uh, the, the reason I ask is because, um, in California, it's different. <laughs> <laughs> Out here, we wear clothes, Ed. There are many types of <laughs> Go ahead. Um, I, you know, it's sort of a, a traditional practice of, of focusing one's thoughts, of, of being, you know, conscious of, of the experience of one's body and, and sort of practicing a focus of, of directing one's thoughts to a you know a specific thing rather than letting mm -hmm. you know one's thinking be scattered that that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm gonna try to give some some thoughts. Uh, so focus meaning attention. Yeah, in that sense. So attention uh, is regulated by hormones, and those are important for strengthening memory through the processes we talked about. Uh, so perhaps that could be a link to think about, right? And uh, meditation lowers stress level, and too much stress impacts um, memory expression, memory performance, as we said. So that could be another link to think mm -hmm. about. That that meditation it, it doesn't, you know, completely eradicate stress, but it, it simply mediates it. Decreases, right? Or, or even, you know, increases one's ability to sort of control the amount of stress that, that one If, if you have control, it means that you can lower, actually, right. the level of stress hormones. Sure. And when they are too high, yeah. there is an impact, as we said, in memory performance, and some studies actually have shown that what the impact is retrieval. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. retrieval is impaired. In high stress conditions, so that perhaps could be some link to think about. In well, one to thing question. that Christina said earlier that <clears throat> is really important in your mind's eye right now, picture an XY axis that inverted U mm -hmm. that describes everything from chemical reactions in a test tube to the way stars go through the planet. It's a phenomenally important function. <clears throat> too little is not. If, if this is performance, too little is no good. There's an optimal, and then too much is no good. And that it really does describe a lot of things beyond psychology. And, and in that, maybe what, I know nothing about uh, meditation, but maybe you're shifting it back to the optimal. If you're a little further over to the right, maybe you're just shifting that valence back to the optimal. And we have language to capture that, calling it meditation or relaxation, which captures it. But maybe what you're really doing is just resetting it back. Not really. I mean, another way to say it is we're getting back to that optimal, which is moving further away from the stress level. 
And, you know, it is important to stay stressed a bit. I mean, if you're going to take a right. test and you're not up for it, you're not going to do well. So right. a little bit's good, but most of us are on the right-hand side of that curve. Right. I, I just wonder, you know, what it is about meditation that doesn't, you know, that all of these studies are sort of um, reporting these very positive results sure. and not a result that goes completely to the opposite end of that bell curve where people are too chilled out to, you know, yeah. to remember anything or, you know, focus at all. I mean, it's just some suggestion. I don't think there are proof that, that that's what explains, but it's, mm -hmm. it is a reasonable suggestion to think about. Sure, sure. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you, everybody. Thank you, the participants.